Greetings and welcome to Mental Health Trailblazer, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I'm your host, Andreas Kasai, and today we are exploring the substance use-related mental health challenges that adolescents and young adults in America from ethnic and racial minority groups are facing. Joining for this conversation is SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association alumna, Dr. Lakitra Josie. Dr. Josie, welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers. Thank you very much. So let me start, Dr. Josie, by asking you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. Um, we can do the long version or the short version. <laughs> the short version is, uh, I'm Dr. Good morning. I'm Dr. Lakitra Josie. I'm a psych nurse practitioner proud alum of the University of Pennsylvania for my PhD, MSN, BSN, graduate of Rutgers for my degree in psychology, and a proud SAMHSA fellow and currently the president of our graduate association that we formed and incorporated in 2016. Fellow um, Quaker. Yes, yes. Right now, currently, my current role, I'm a mental health nurse practitioner and also a practice owner. So I have two outpatient mental health practices in Delaware. One is focused primarily on mental health. It's called Your Center. And our other practice is Phoenix Center for Health and Wellness, and that's a substance use treatment disorder program. Well, thank you for that introduction, Dr. Josie. And today we are discussing the substance use disorder related mental health challenges that young people are facing. So if you could help us understand what is happening out there when it comes to substance use disorders and substance abuse, especially for young people from minoritized communities, how are things changing or evolving and why is this cause for concern? It's a concern for a number of reasons. I can tell you in general that substance use across the board, adolescents and adults has been increasing. We especially saw an increase during the pandemic and, and things progressively have continued to get worse. And I would also just point out that we're not just looking at substances in terms of illicit things like drugs or alcohol, but, you know, things like social media and technology. Like these are addictive behaviors and compulsive behaviors that people are using to either help themselves feel better or feel different, feel other than how they feel in the moment. The reason that it's such a concern for adolescents and one of the things that we have to think about is that we have to look at it in a bigger picture context. Psych nurses are all about context, okay? <laughs> and so when we're talking about adolescents, we're talking about brains that are in the process of developing and continuing to develop. We're talking about people trying to figure out who they are and where they fit in the world. There's pressures internal and external to try to figure those things out sooner rather than later. And there's a cognitive piece. There's a learning piece. There's a brain function piece where when we think of adults using substances, we, we tend to think of them as using them to avoid feeling something. The concern with adolescence is that sometimes it's just because they're trying and they're trying new things and they're learning to like them. But that's a function of learning. That's a function of cognition, right? Like as kids are growing and developing, one of the things that helps them learn is to do things that they enjoy. And that's one of the things that makes substance use particularly risky and dangerous for adolescents because their brains are wired to like things more. 
those pleasure chemicals like dopamine and serotonin, dopamine in particular, but serotonin, their brain releases them in more quantities because that helps them learn. So if they do something and they engage with a substance and it makes them feel better than they've ever felt before, that, you know, that effect is magnified. It's intensified for them. They feel things more deeply and that makes them more prone and more at risk for developing the addictive behaviors. So is it just the addictive behavior that might develop that that is a concern or do the substances themselves or and and it's interesting that you mentioned social media and and those things as things that you would put under this category of addictive substances do they actually do something to the brain and why is that a concern like what happens so one of the things that we've learned that happens is because the brain is developing and it's developing into our mid-20s. So it's not just something that happens in childhood. It's not, you know, it's not even done until we're about mid-20. The pathways, the neuropathways are set. So when we start using substances and we prime the brain to want or seek that stimulation, we're setting pathways that are harder to reverse. That makes sense. Right. So if we're setting a pathway that requires a high amount of stimulation all the time. So, you know, even with that, I think about people being on devices and phones and stuff like that, that like constant stimulation, we're setting our brain to be primed for that when we don't have that our brain misses it because that's what it was used to. And so even with technology, we can experience withdrawal. And like I was saying, with the way that the brain changes, it's hard to rewire. It takes so much time for the brain to develop. It takes almost as much time to unwind or change some of the pathways that once they're set. There's something called pruning that happens during childhood and adolescence where the brain gets rid of extra neurons. We're born with many more than what we need. And over time, our brain gets rid of the stuff that it doesn't need. It tries to be really efficient. But if we set these pathways, we set these ways of reacting, these ways of responding, these ways of coping, then that's what the brain has. It's gotten rid of the other ones. And so to create new ones... It takes time. So these things are actually molding somebody's behavior patterns, somebody's personality, and all of that is not necessarily predetermined, but it evolves depending on the environment and what kind of stimulation that they're getting. That's uh, that's really interesting. And in terms of technology, I've seen what it does to little kids and young adolescents when you stop their access to Wi-Fi or or take away their devices, the reaction can be sometimes a little bit unreal. How do you then work with these young people as a psychiatric mental health nurse? How do you find them? How are they referred to you? How do you recognize that something is going on and that intervention is required? Having a practice, we get referrals from schools, we get referrals from people contacting us themselves because there already is an issue. I'm pretty vocal in my community about working on the other end and trying to prevent an issue. And so we try to work with the schools in the area to actually have 
clinicians go into the schools and provide education to everybody, not just students that have been identified as having problems, but to all students on coping, emotion regulation, problem solving, because these are skills that everyone needs, but not everyone is taught. And there are times where it tries to get integrated into school curriculums But not everybody is able to deliver that content in the same way or have the same training or background or even know necessarily what to do if a problem does come up, right? Um, Like, how do you intervene with someone if when you've had a conversation, then, you know, they become really upset? Like, what do you do next? And I think that that's one of the things that teachers sometimes are concerned about when they're trying to be tasked with some of this. So On our end, we try to be a bit more proactive in working with schools directly and going in and providing education, information, having a clinician resource available so that should something come up, there's someone available that's trained, skilled, licensed, and able to intervene. I'm a health teacher. I go teach health to second through eighth graders, and I teach health from the top to the bottom, and we we get it all into everything. And I answer questions honestly. This is not typical for nurses to be doing this. So if you could walk us through that process, like how did you think I need to do this? I'm seeing this problem in my community. I need to get to the, not the source, but at least where a lot of these young people are congregating and the the other groups that are working with them and getting the school to agree for you to come in. How does that work? It was a lot of work and it it took a lot of time uh, just being transparent. Again, as a nurse, we, we try to think upstream. My orientation is I would rather build up a child than repair an adult. It's so much harder to undo. Whereas if I can mentally prepare, emotionally equip whatever I can add to a child or an adolescent's toolkit to help them function in the world, I'm up for doing that. Sometimes it takes multiple conversations. In our case, it took multiple conversations with school districts and a bunch of different regulators. We have to stick to it and we have to be committed to recognizing the importance of it. And then unfortunately, but you know, COVID happened and then mental health became a focus for kids and adolescents. It was harder at the front end saying that we know that there's an issue for mental health and we know that there's an issue with like anxiety and depression for kids and adolescents. COVID with how everything shut down and locked down, it, it brought that much more into a focus. And because we had already been a presence and we were a known presence in the community, we were one of the people that they tapped into first when it came time to intervene. So some of it is about patience and being prepared and being prepared to go and do when an opportunity comes forward. I can't say that it's the typical job, but I I would challenge my nurse and nurse practitioner colleagues and clinicians to think outside of the typical job because the typical hasn't always worked that well. So we need to be able to do things differently in order to actually reach people and hopefully reach them before there's a problem. And from a prevention standpoint, it can be hard to to stress the importance because you can't necessarily quantify it for people. You can't say, I've saved you X amount of dollars in treatment because I, I we don't know yet. Like if we're working with kids, we don't know until they're adults, like how much 
our work right now has impacted them. But it's still important work, and I'll still do it. How has the program been received by the students, by their family, teachers, the community? The students, the teachers, family members always appreciate having us there, knowing that there is a resource that they can go to. We've taken a weight off of some of the teachers and feeling personally responsible for managing some of the things. We've also been a resource for teachers. So rather than taking a kid that's having a hard time out of a classroom, working with a teacher on how you might navigate or redirect or manage this behavior so that this kid's learning isn't disrupted and the other children in the classroom or the other adolescents in the classroom, their learning isn't disrupted either. And so we work we work with everybody, not just this identified patient. It takes a village to raise a child. So yeah, educating everybody is absolutely important. And, and are you documenting all of this? Because I think you are probably a trailblazer in this line of work and the work that you're doing the systems, the plans that you're putting in place, those modalities can be almost blueprints for other people, things that they can adapt to their particular circumstances. Are you sharing this information anywhere? I mean, we share the information with the district. We share the information with the schools. The programs are newer. So we're, you know, in the process of writing up. These are our findings from like the last school year, for example. I mean, I think the things that we were able to document are the things that haven't happened, right? Like we haven't had a number of suspensions or we haven't had a number of hospitalizations. The things that we, that, you know, potentially would have escalated to crisis point before didn't happen this year, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Or even people, unfortunately, in the wake of, you know, multiple school shootings and having conversations with young people about what that means and how we're keeping ourselves safe and all those things like that, like actually having somebody available and present to be able to address those concerns in a way that, you know, that the kids feel supported, the teachers feel supported, the administrators and the school feel supported. There's a lot of okay, this didn't happen this year. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, the way that media works, the way that our attention spans have evolved over time, the onus is on like getting that dramatic event. And and so you always find the the shooting to Mm -hmm. be the action that gets attention and not the lack of shooting. But this is uh, something that our media colleagues, I think, need to pick up on as well. And it is an important story. And if, if journalists don't pick it up, then we definitely should be blowing our own trumpets, telling everybody this is what's happening. You know, the rates of this are going down, uh, even if it's anecdotal. Like last year, we had this and this year, it's much better, thanks to Dr. <laughs> Josie and co. So um, yeah, I think it's important to get the word out and to have this as a model for up and coming nurses as well. And those who are keen on working with the community and might not know how. But I want to go back to the main focus of our discussion here. This is the Minority Fellowship Program. And so mm-hmm. we're looking at the uh, the nuances when it comes to young people from ethnic and racial minority groups. So how are all of these things affecting young people from minoritized communities more than the general public? 
I mean, I can tell you that across the board, substance use among adolescents has increased, but we have seen it increase even more among Hispanic and Black adolescents. And while substance use across the board is concerning, the overdose deaths have increased among Black and adolescents more, even over the time since the pandemic. And one of the things that I think contributes to that, unfortunately, is the the tampering with the substances that are available. So we, you know, when we're thinking about people trying things like marijuana, we're missing that often those things are laced with other things like fentanyl or xylazine and and those things kill people and they they kill young people more quickly. And so there's a bit of a perfect storm, right? Because adolescence is a time where people are trying to figure out who they are and who they want to be in the world. It's a time of experimentation and trying new things. And the more you hear people say, don't do this, the more you're like, oh, well, but I'm gonna because, you know, I need to be my own person and I'm just going to do whatever. And well, because you told me not to. <laughs> right, or because you told me not to. So I have yeah, to do yeah. something different. And what they don't understand is that, unfortunately, these things are extremely dangerous, even like the synthetic substances that people are using in order to avoid having them show up on a drug screen. You don't know what it's being mixed with. You really don't know. And, and the danger of, you know, potential death and, and you know, Kids sometimes think we're like blowing things out of proportion when we say like, but you could die from this. And we're like, no, really, legitimately, you could die from this. Like people are dying from it all the time. But I have very real and frank conversations with kids, adolescents about that. But I come from a place of caring. So I'm not coming from a place of I'm an adult and I'm trying to tell you what to do. I'm coming from a place of I'm an I'm an adult that cares about you and wants you to continue to exist. <laughs> and so because I want you to continue to be here, I want you to be careful about what it is that you're doing and what you're trying and why. One, your brain is more prone to becoming addicted to substances. So I, I and I tell them that like you're more likely to be addicted. I'll also tell them that you are more likely to feel this more intensely. That can be a danger for you. And you are more at risk for dying because your body can't process this stuff in the way that adults could. How do they respond to this information when they receive it? I was recently talking with someone and he is very set on a future career in farming and growing marijuana there's spaces and places where that is legal. And, you know, my conversation with him is, you will do what you are going to do. I understand that. My job is to tell you what my concerns are. My concerns are that your brain is still developing and will be developing until you're 25. You could change the wiring of your brain so that this becomes something that you need and not necessarily something that you want or used just for recreational purposes, but becomes something that you need and can't do without. Because it changes your brain. It changes your brain and makes it prioritize that substance over everything else. I'll talk about the pathway of addiction and how it changes and, you know, changes your motivation and what you think is important and what your priority is and, you know, how personalities change. Um, and, and, you know, talking to a teenage boy and having him say like, that's a fair point. I'm like, 
all right, I've made some progress, right? Or, you know, the fact that he'll even feel comfortable asking me, like, what's your take on psilocybin or magic mushrooms or dosing of this or dosing of that? And I tell them what I always tell them. I don't have data to support that use for you. And like as an adolescent, I don't have data that supports its safety. I don't have data that supports its efficacy. So that's what you're going to get from me. And they know that that's what they're going to get from me. But they also know where the concern is going to come from. So have any of have you had experiences where the young people were using substances and then over time they said, no, okay, I'm not going to do it? They have. Um, I've had adolescents because we we weigh what the impact is. Like how how has this actually helped you? Because when when they're doing something and they're thinking that it's helping them, let's take a step back and look at life and say let's let's look at how it actually has helped you. Has it helped you in your relationships with people? For the most part, no. A lot of the relationships have actually gotten messed up or I've gotten into relationships with people that I wouldn't otherwise be in relationships with. It's created conflict with my parents. It's cost me my job. My grades have declined. I'm like, okay, so where's the helping you part? And and I'm like, I'm asking and sometimes I inject humor. Sometimes it's sarcasm. Sometimes it's like a foot in the behind because it's like, really, like, where is it? Show me where this is helping you. I'm not judging, but like, if we want life to be better, then where is this helping? And if it's helping just in the sense that it makes you feel differently than how you feel right now, then let's talk about that and figure out what we need to do to help you feel better. And that is something that I think is very important that we, we just, we can't separate mental health and substance use. Like those two things go together. And a lot of times funding federal agencies, state agencies, there's the mental health agency and there's the substance use agency. And it's like these things are isolated and they're really not. And they're definitely not when it comes to adolescence, like all that stuff is swirling together. So we need to be able to address all of it. And does this become more of a challenge for young people from black and brown communities? I mean, it's definitely a challenge for a number of reasons. There's, There's the challenge in that There are spaces where if someone is choosing not to partake, then they may not have the community that they're looking for, right? Or the friends that they're they're looking for. If it's available or, you know, if life is just that challenging and they need a way to escape and this provides that for them. I mean, everybody copes. So it's really hard to tell somebody that we're going to take away your the thing that you do to cope if we're not replacing it with something. If we're not giving them something else to do or something to help them feel better, you can't just look at somebody and say, stop doing that thing that makes you feel better or that like lets you get some sleep at night. Otherwise, I'm listening to gunshots. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's uh, Yeah. Or, there, you know, there's no recreational place around here or. Right. I mean, the other side of it is also if you do get a young person to that point where they recognize that it's not really doing anything for them and they want to stop, but it requires the next part, right? So either if either treatment or therapy or something, something like that, I'm imagining if you are in an under-resourced community, 
perhaps you don't have insurance. What are those challenges like for these young people? I have to be transparent in that the space where I'm in, children will have insurance. So there isn't any reason for a child not to have insurance. That is less of a concern for where I am, but I can recognize that it it, it can be an issue. And I will say that there are people that have even like private insurances, let's say, but their family has a large deductible that they have to meet in order to. So the the cost can become prohibitive for, for people. It can get in the way, it can get in the way for from a treatment standpoint, it gets in the way even being open to access care. Sometimes adolescents don't necessarily want their parents to know the extent to which they're involved with whatever substance, but then the parent has to provide consent for treatment. So that creates that that will keep kids from accessing care sometimes because they don't necessarily want their parents to know. But a parent has to provide consent. What signs should parents be looking out for? I think deviations from norm. I don't want to mischaracterize any anyone. Like some people's temperaments are or personality types are more to themselves just in general, but we find that people are isolating more to the point where they're not interacting or, you know, their care for themselves is going out the window when maybe they, you know, used to care what their hair looked like or they used to care what their clothes looked like or, you know, they're not sleeping or not eating. Those things that are changing to extreme levels where people are stealing or, you know, taking money in order to support a habit in some way or another, those are things to worry about. How has the behavioral workforce been responding to these challenges? And what do you think that nurses and others who are working with young people, what do they need in their toolkit that they're perhaps not getting in their training or at school to effectively respond? For nurses, I I think it's important to recognize that it's all integrated, right? Nothing happens in isolation in the body. And I can think back to being a psych nurse practitioner and training to be a psych nurse practitioner and sitting in my physical assessment class. And nurses can be a little clicky sometimes, but, you know, you've got your family nurse practitioners over here and your nurse anesthetist over here. And there was some question as to why the psych person was in a physical assessment class. And uh, and I'm like, because I need to know. The reality is we can't say that something is a psych issue unless we know that it's not a medical issue. So I actually need to know all of this stuff. I need to know all of the general pharmacology in addition to my psych pharmacology. Like I need to, because all of that stuff integrates and can impact people's mood and their behavior and all that stuff like that. Whether a nurse practitioner or a registered nurse, we still learn pathophysiology. We like the brain is not separate from the body. And substances, while they may impact the brain, they impact the rest of the body. So understanding all of that and tying it all together, I think is helpful because the conversation isn't just about this is bad for you. It can make you dizzy and make your reflexes. Oh, like we're, we're tying it into every system. Substances impact every system. So let's talk about what happens when you use drugs. This is what happens in your eyes. This is what happens in your lungs. This is what happens in your heart. And we go all the way through and all the way down. And nurses are trained in that way. We know that information. I would put one of us pretty much everywhere because you know, like we can be helpful in a bunch of spaces, but especially working with kids. Yeah. 
What has been the most challenging part of the work for you, working with young people? And how have you overcome those? The most challenging part of working with young people is there's so much that's outside of our control. When we're working with adults, we tend to think that you're working with someone that has more choice and say in what happens in their life when they go back to whatever their life is. When we're working with kids and adolescents, and I'll be honest, this is some of the reasons that people stay away from working with kids and adolescents, because there are so many other factors that you have zero control over that make the work really hard. You know, you might want to do or intervene in one way and we we just physically can't, or, you know, we, we have no control over what house setup they're going back to, what school system they're going back to. We don't necessarily have control over what their past experience has been or the people in their lives that are perhaps disappointing them over and over again. What we can do is equip them to navigate the challenges, to help them cope, to help support them, and to be a safe space and a safe adult. And sometimes that's the only thing that we can do is be a safe adult that they can talk to. And sometimes that's what what someone needs. How many people can you be that for? You just described somebody who might not uh, have a safe space at home. Perhaps their parents are using as well. They come to you. They develop this trusting relationship and it's helping them. Does that develop? I mean, that in itself becomes an attachment. And does that ever become a problem itself that somebody has become you know, overly dependent on you? It's a boundary that we often have to work on navigating. And it can be a challenge to maintain. It can be hard not to take some of that stuff, a lot of that stuff home at night, right? And have it still dwelling in your mind um, as as you're trying to get to sleep at night. And I think the ways that I am able to get around that is I recognize my limitations up front. And I communicate those limitations up front. I don't find that that necessarily really changes the relationship I have with any of the kids that I've been working with. I can say to them, I'm sorry that you're in a situation that is unfair to you. And I can recognize that the situation is unfair. And we can have an honest conversation that that's not a fair situation for you to be in. But what are the things that we can do? What are the supports that we can put in place? to help you navigate this situation, one, to keep you safe. Now, of course, if there is a safety concern, then I'm a mandated reporter and that like, you know, safety trumps everything. So if there were any issues of abuse or neglect or anything like that, then we intervene directly. But other things like conflict with parents, or even if, you know, there's concern about parents' substance use or anything like that, sometimes I'm able to facilitate a conversation. Sometimes I'm able to help them find the words that they want to use to communicate with a parent, a teacher, a peer, uh, whoever, and help them make it better. And I tell people up front, my job is to put myself out of business. The reality is my job is to get somebody to a point where they they don't need me. They need me for this like little bit. They need me for a check-in. 
maybe, you know, some med adjustments here or there, but like, I'm recognizing the fact that they are more equipped to live their lives and do what they need to do. I'm just here to help guide, be an objective third party person to help them process some stuff, a medication expert when needed, but they're doing the majority of the work and I give them the credit for doing the work. So then it's, it's not about me. It's not about me being the person that saved them or like maybe I, I helped, I facilitated, but they did the work and I always give them the credit for it. I find that that makes it less of I'm their only person. Right. No. And, and the rewards for doing this work, because you sound quite committed and <laughs> uh, I, I'm imagining that there must have been situations and circumstances where you're like, why am I doing this? Or that it just was really tough and that it was affecting you. So what are the rewards? What drives your commitment? And how have you seen yourself change doing this work? I've seen myself, believe it or not, my husband might laugh at me, but uh, I'll say I've grown in humility and <laughs> um, recognizing my own limitations, especially coming out, wanting to be that superhero savior for everyone. And I really had to recognize that that's just not my role. My role is really more to be a guide. So that, you know, that was something that I, I was able to grow out of relatively early on in my career. I think that the rewards that I get from this, I mean, just in general, I would like to see a healthier community and a healthier world. I have young people in my own life. I have children. I have a bonus daughter. I have an 11-year-old. I, you know, I want them to grow up in a world that is safe for them. But I've always been passionate about just health and mental health in general and recognizing that they're not separate. They all go together. And so trying to help people be healthy. I can't even say the side work that I do, but you know, I, I get remoted into doctor's appointments to help translate what the doctor or, you know, primary care provider or oncologist or whoever is, what information they're giving them so that I can help the person that is getting that news process whatever decision they need to make about for their, their physical health care. But that's the orientation of nursing. So I guess, you know, I'm just in my, I'm in my space because, and I do well here because it, you know, it works for me. <laughs> I want to now look at the future and considering the scope of the challenges that you've laid out, including A, the evolution in the types of substances that are out there, the dangers that are associated with them. And then, you know, earlier you made the point about, for example, marijuana that's laced. And I'm wondering in like well-resourced communities, they might have access to, you know, the organic, quote unquote, clean marijuana versus uh, on, the, on the streets in the hood where it might be laced with something else. And then the impact of technology as well. There are these new, you know, quote unquote substances that are shaping young people's minds and leading to addictive personalities. How do you see your own career evolving within this shifting landscape? And then the role of the MFP in all of this? While there are communities that are maybe more resourced, I don't necessarily see them getting all the time cleaner substances, more because they're going to 
the places to get the stuff. People are making trips and traveling. And one of the things that's actually concerning to me is that the idea that you've had to be Narcanned in order to bring you back to life is a badge of honor among some people, adults and adolescents included, from a substance use perspective. It's like, this stuff I used was so potent that like they had to Narcan me four times to bring me back. And for them, some of them have actually described it as their cheating death. So they're getting as close as they possibly can to dying and being brought back. And that's glorified. It's glorified. Wow. It is. It's glorified amongst adults and it's glorified amongst adolescents. And that that actually scares me because they're chasing the next thing that will require like, this isn't a trophy. <laughs> like, you won't get bragging rights for this because you'll be dead, right? Like, um, and that that's some of the conversations that I have with some of the adolescents, too, is that, like, this isn't a trophy that you're trying to go for, but it is something that is pretty significant in the community in that it's like they've done a lot of the other stuff and nothing else quite feels like being brought back from death. Not the adrenaline rush, all the stuff that people have to do in order to bring somebody back to get their heart beating, to get them breathing and all that stuff. I mean, it is very dangerous. And is this something that's being driven by social media? I mean, it's not explicitly talked about on social media, but it is if you know what you're listening for. And as soon as I say what I'm listening for, then they'll change it to something else. So um, it it is talked about within, you know, the the community itself about where to get different substances if you want this experience or that experience. And so from that standpoint, it's definitely scarier. I think from a career standpoint, my drive and my passion will continue to be pushing more towards the integration of substance and mental health treatment and not having it so siloed and separate. Even just as an example where I am, mental health is one thing and substance use treatment is licensed separately and the two don't cross, right? And and it's not to say that things don't happen or co-occur, but like it's just different pots of money, different rules and things like that. And there are spaces where technically you can be licensed to provide care for both. There's just additional requirements that a smaller practice may not be able to meet. You know what I mean? But, you know, like I said, we find our ways around. So if I can't do it under one organization, I'll have two organizations and I'll, you know, we'll find a way to do it. For the MFP and for nurses and for clinicians, one of the things that I think that is helped the most and will help the most is having an understanding of systems, just a big picture understanding of family systems, organizational systems, political systems, being able to take a step back and look at the roles that different people play and how and why so that you can find the spaces where you can intervene. And that's some of what we talked about with the fellows during some of the intensives and stuff like that. When it's like when you're trying to make changes and move things forward, Sometimes you can't always go just straight direct at. You have to go around. Is it annoying to have to go around? Sure. But like if it gets you to where you need to be, sometimes it's just a function of learning and time. The other thing that I would just say, one of the things that I talk about with adolescents, one of the things I talk about with adults, I talk about it with anybody, whether it's substance use, 
changing behavior, time it takes for medication to work. Like there really just isn't, we can't make the brain do that much, that much faster. Like the brain will do what it does and it does it in the time that it will do it. We might want it to go faster. We're not necessarily going to be able to make it go faster. Sometimes even learning some of the adolescents that I've talked to, I check in with them at one point and then I check in with them later on and I say, you know, and they're like, it just takes so much time. And I'm like, but look at how much you've grown, right? Like I, I talked to you last week and you were thinking this, like I talked to you this week and your perspective has changed. The only thing that has passed is time. You had some time to like sit and process and think it through and like take some feedback and work with it. Sometimes time is the intervention. We don't want too much time to go and we don't want too much time for for people to struggle, but sometimes we need to give things the time that they're, or at least respect the time that things take or that they need to take. Absolutely. I mean, talking about respecting time and the time that things take and, you know, SAMHSA, who supports this uh, program, is celebrating 50 years of Mm. uh, having the Minority Fellowship Program in the seven sectors, including nursing. So this is a good point to sort of take stock of what has happened in the past, you know, where things were when, when the program started and the achievements that thus far. And I think we would be right to say that you yourself and your fellow alum are a big part of that achievement. But looking to the future, how would you like to see the program evolve? When I came into the program, it was primarily for doctoral students. So I was witness to the change when master's fellows came in and DNP fellows came in. It was, was, you know, primarily PhD before PhD and some DNP. And so seeing that shift to provide more clinicians that will be able to go out and do the work and collaborative partnerships between the people that are going to go do the work and people that might be doing the research for the work, Anything that can be done to facilitate that both within nursing and amongst. So with our like social work colleagues, our psychology colleagues, our physician colleagues, there are definitely ways that we could collaborate to tackle this without having to get into any sort of real like power struggles or anything like that. Like everybody has a space and a role to play, especially if we stick to the motivating goal of improving the health of our community. I think some of our resources targeted towards clinician education and support, especially in that transition to practice. That first year transition to practice can be really, really challenging, more because there's so few, there's such a limited number of clinicians to begin with. And so many, when they're finishing their program, they're going out and they're going into a space where they're going to be the only one. They might be the only clinician. And so that's part of the motivation of the Graduate Association. That's one of the things that I that we've tasked ourselves with the responsibility of is being a support for not just fellows that are going into doctoral positions or, you know, faculty academic positions, but those going into clinical practice as well, to be able to provide support for them in their in their careers and their transitions and their clinical case conferencing and things like that, having a resource where you can ask questions and and be supported. I think we would have more people go into working with adolescents and children if they didn't feel like they were going to be alone when they went to go do it. 
Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Having that community. Very important. It's been a wonderful conversation. So I just want to end on a positive note. If you could tell me what gives you hope? My heart is so full already that I wake up every day with a full heart. And that gives me hope because I, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I have what I need. I have a family that loves me. I have friends that love me. And, you know, my hope is that I'll make a world that'll be okay for them. Yeah, beautiful. Amen. Amen. Dr. Josie, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And yeah, this has been wonderful. And that does it for this episode of Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion and I look forward to you joining us on future episodes. This is the Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association podcast, featuring nurse scientists addressing the psychiatric and mental health issues affecting underrepresented communities across America. You can always find us online at emfp.org and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The views expressed by the speakers and hosts do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government.